Welcome back to another episode of the Badger Herald podcast. This is your host, Ken. Today, our guest is Professor Mark Loudon at the German Department of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Loudon is the Alfred L. Shoemaker, J. William Frey, and Don Uter Professor of Germanic Linguistics and Director of the Max Cade Institute for German-American Studies at UW-Madison. A linguist by training, most of his research is related to language, history, and culture of German-related language varieties in North America, especially Pennsylvania Dutch, of which he is a fluent speaker. His main research interests are German linguistics, German-American studies, Anabaptist studies, and Yiddish studies. Professor Loudon, welcome to the show. To begin with, could you please tell us a little bit about the general history of German immigrants to Wisconsin? Specifically, when did they originally settle here, and why were they drawn to this region? For many, many years now, Wisconsin has had the reputation of being the most German of the American states, um, because for decades now, the percentage of the population that claims German ancestry as its main ancestry is um, either the very highest or very close to the highest. So it's been number one or number two um, in terms of percentages of the population. There are some communities in Wisconsin today that um, have over 60% of their populations uh, claiming German ancestry. So it's a very uh, a longstanding presence. It began in the uh, years before uh, Wisconsin statehood. So Wisconsin became a state in 1848, but like all U.S. states, it was always preceded by a territorial status. So it had been a territory before that. And Euro-Americans had been moving here for decades, um, starting with the French coming down from Canada, and then followed by Anglo-Americans, especially also known as Yankees coming from out east, places like New York. And the Germans started coming in 1839, and the first group of Germans to uh, settle in Wisconsin came from an area that is actually no longer part of Germany, but is located in northwestern Poland, so very close to the German border. And this was an area that's known as Pomerania. It has a long sort of German heritage going way, way back. A lot of people recognize the name because of the dog breed, and <laughs> they're Pomeranian dogs. But um, the Pomeranians that came to Wisconsin, there were originally 20 families that arrived um, and founded a community that still exists today that's just to the northwest of Milwaukee. It's known as Freistadt, which means literally free place. And this group was in search of religious freedom. They were members of a religious minority group in uh, Prussia, so which was that larger kingdom within uh, the German, what became the German Empire later, that was, it was, a, it was, a, it was an oppressed religious minority, the old Lutherans, they were known as. And so religious freedom was one thing that they sought, but ultimately all immigrants, whether they're coming for, say, religious reasons or political reasons, economic reasons are in the mix. And typically most immigrants come to this country to look for economic opportunities. And that was the case for the Germans as well. Why were they drawn to Wisconsin? A lot of people say, well, because the landscape looks a lot like Germany um, in some parts of the state. Um, that's not actually really the case. So like in the starting in the late 1830s and then 1840s, basically immigrants like Germans who were overwhelmingly rural people, so farmers and crafts people who were looking for available land, 
went to the places where in America where land was still available, which was typically, say, in the early 19th century, not in places like New York or Pennsylvania or Ohio, but where the frontier was. So where states were just becoming, were coming, uh, developing out of territories and um, Euro-American settlement was just sort of picking up. Of course, that was always at the expense of the Native American population. One has to say that. So um, it's, it's not like there was nobody living in a place like Wisconsin. Obviously, Native peoples were here first. Um, but, with, but Germans came here not as the very, very first Euro-Americans, but they came because to places like Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, and Illinois um, in the 1830s, 1840s, because land was widely available for them. That was the main reason. You know, as we know, language is strongly influenced by shared culture and geographic location of a group. So how did the German language morph or evolve among groups of German immigrants in Wisconsin? The people that we call Germans today, definitely in the 1800s when they first started coming here, didn't really describe themselves as Germans. They described themselves as coming from their specific region. So, for example, I mentioned the Pomeranians before. Rather than seeing themselves as, um, you know, kin or related to or connected with German speakers from other regions, they basically just identified themselves as Pomeranians. What you find is really large numbers of what we consider sort of geographically compact German-speaking groups that settled in Wisconsin, often in kinds of clusters. So it wasn't like, you know, everybody all just kind of mixed with one another. There were sort of these pockets. And that's very, very common in uh, many forms of immigration, where you tend to have people coming not just from an overall region or country, but from a very, very compact or specific region. So um, the, and along with these regional identities came very, very specific forms of German that were in some cases quite different from the standard German language that we teach, for example, in our department today, and it's used in schools and media in Europe. It's basically what people call dialects, but really they were, in a sense, kind of parallel languages, right? Dialect sounds like it's sort of incomplete or in, you know, subordinate or something, but standard German really is just simply a kind of a written dialect that about 300, 400 years ago got promoted to uh, written status, but really the, the regional languages or the so-called dialects of Germany are, are ancient. What we find is a kind of transplantation of these regional dialects, but then because these are living languages as they were maintained in which many of these were maintained after immigration for at least a couple of generations, the languages just simply develop independently. One of the ways that they develop is through the bilingualism of their speakers. So this idea that somehow when people come over speaking a language other than English and, and never learn English, that's really more of a myth. Um, you find that maybe among some older immigrants in the first generation, but even in the first generation, people develop bilingual skills um, fairly quickly. And certainly second and third generation, um, the English almost becomes dominant in many cases and leads to a form of language shift. So English definitely had an influence on these uh, forms of German. The main way that languages influence one another is by borrowing of words, right? So the exchange of words, exchange of vocabulary items. So words for um, objects and concepts and ideas that were unfamiliar to the settlers, like the word for fence, right? They actually didn't have fences where they were coming from in, in Europe. They would have like sort of stone walls or they'd mark property boundaries in different ways. But looking at 
fences in the American context, they just simply use the American word fence. And uh, that's a, a universal process of uh, mutual influence. So that was really the main way that German varieties in Wisconsin and other parts of America um, developed from their ancestral roots in Europe. And that's through contact with English. So how did the German language influence the American English we speak today? Or how did English affected, you know, or influence the German language besides, you know, the borrowing of words and stuff like that? Well, definitely the borrowing of words is the main uh, factor, but it, it's, if we think about German influence on English, there's a lot of borrowings that have been like, for example, the word kindergarten, right? Um, which is a German concept, educational concept that was brought over. And in fact, started in Wisconsin, the first kindergarten in America was founded by German immigrants in Watertown, Wisconsin, which is about midway between Madison and Milwaukee. But if you think about it, there are especially a lot of words that are associated with food. So things like brat, short for bratwurst, sauerkraut, streusel, right, which is a type of topping on a cake, pretzel, it's a fairly old one, even the word noodle, right? I mean, and then you think, well, what else can you say for noodle? Pasta? Oh, that was borrowed from Italian, so one of the main ways that American culture generally has gotten influenced by immigration is through food ways, through food culture. And so it's not surprising that we find lots and lots of vocabulary items from German and many, many other languages um, that have entered the language um, through cuisine. But then there are other words too, like for example, Zeitgeist, which is the German word Zeitgeist, Wanderlust, um, Wunderkind, Schadenfreude. These are words that come from, we could say, sort of German intellectual influences. And you find, for example, at American universities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, trying to model themselves on German universities and German culture. And in fact, into the 20th century, the most popular so-called living spoken foreign language for American students to learn in high schools as well as universities was German then Spanish replaced that after World War II. So um, you find words that are coming in that way also through music. For example, the lead uh, violinist in an orchestra is called a concertmaster, which is a rendering of Konzertmeister from German. Um, so a lot of things having to do with musical terminology, of course, Italian figures in there as well. And then things like, for example, breeds of dogs that like the Dachshund come from, from Germany or they're referred to their German origins like a German shepherd. One of my favorite, uh, fairly recent influences is the prefix Uber. <laughs> so we talk about like with the vehicle, but before that, um, this is something that a lot of you know young people and even not so young people will say, it's like that Uber cool, or to talk about say like an Uber model. Well, that comes from the German uh, prefix Uber, which is related to the English word over or strong, uh, powerful. And there's a concept that comes from German philosophy. It's known as the Übermensch, which is basically kind of like the German version of Superman. And so Mensch means human. So like Übermensch is like a superhuman, a superman. And so that part of a word, that uh, prefix has entered into American English vocabulary fairly recently. Thank you for a very interesting answer. You know, I didn't know that noodle is a borrowed word from German. So I guess I learned something new today. So in this, you know, you mentioned food a little bit. So what are some ways that German immigrants influenced the Wisconsin food culture? 
Well, um, in the same way that lots of other immigrant groups have historically and today continue to influence food culture in Wisconsin, I mean, just walk down State Street and the food carts have started appearing back on Library Mall, right? Essentially, all those food carts and probably the majority of the restaurants on State Street are international restaurants. Um, so the groups that have been here the longest, like, for example, say the Germans um, and to a certain extent, the French Canadians, they've influenced the cuisine. I'd say that, you know, definitely sausage making um, and certainly the beer industry, which, you know, Milwaukee was sort of like the beer, one of the beer producing capitals of America, a very, very strongly German influenced city beer and sausage. <laughs> These are things that are quite familiar. And, you know, the Oscar Mayer company, which was based in Madison, was bought out by Kraft Foods. Kraft, also another German name. Kraft is now merged with Heinz, <laughs> Heinz ketchup. So there's lots and lots of different ways that foods have entered into, say, the Wisconsin food culture, but sort of American food culture generally. But again, the same way that the languages kind of develop independently, so do the food items as well. So if you look at your average hot dog, right, the hot dog traces its origin to German sausage. And yet, if you go to Germany today, you're going to be hard pressed to find German sausages that really look a lot like the American hot dog. Some things come close. And in the meantime, American hot dogs have been sort of borrowed back. And the same thing with beers, right? German beers are quite different from a lot of American or the most popular American beers. So again, it's this kind of sort of independent development. And then you find also things like fusion cuisine. So things like, you know, sauerkraut being incorporated into certain Asian influenced dishes, perhaps, or sausage being used in things that are not necessarily sort of basically German dishes, right? So there's a lot of ways that food cultures kind of blend with one another. And certainly that's true in Wisconsin, but really uh, everywhere in the United States where you have this kind of melting pot of different food cultures. You know, obviously, from from what we have discussed, like we can tell that Wisconsin is absolutely rich in food culture, especially those brought by immigrants. Besides language and food, religion is also a big part of it. You know, there are different groups within German immigrants, such as Amish or Mennonite, etc. So as a Mennonite yourself, what do you perceive as the most commonly perpetuated stereotype or cultural misunderstanding about these groups that you wish you could just dispel from everyone? <laughs> well, I should say that Amish and Mennonites are a small minority group among the larger population of people whose ancestors came from German-speaking Europe and had a particular um, religious identity. In the 19th century especially, but into the 20th century and to a certain extent today, religion for German immigrants was an important part of their cultural identity. As in Germany today, Christianity is the dominant uh, religion that people identify with, but there are also large Jewish and Muslim populations. But the majority of immigrants that came in the 19th century were Christian, followed by German-Jewish immigrants. And on the, within the German-Christian community, it was probably more Protestant than Catholic, but there were a lot of sort of subgroups on the Protestant side, but Catholic was fairly uniform. And among Jews, most were uh, no, so known as Reformed Jews. Um, and the Reformed Jewish movement is one that began really in Germany in the 19th century. So religious identity was important, but there were always immigrants that actually didn't feel particularly a strong aff affinity for religion. And um, in America, the land of freedom, a lot of people also found the opportunity 
to maybe explore different churches or to not identify with the church at all. And so a minority group among the, among the German immigrants were the so-called freethinkers, Freidenker, who would be, we would call them, say, agnostics or atheists today. And if you go to West Washington Avenue, so just down from the Capitol, like maybe two blocks from the Capitol, you'll see a building that uh, has this uh, writing on it on the west side of West Washington Avenue. It says the Free Thought Hall, and that's the uh, home of a large American atheist organization, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, and they use the term free thought or free thinker. They, it wasn't exclusively German free thinkers or German atheists or agnostics that were associated with us. There had been members of other ethnic groups in America that way too, but there were a number of German free thinkers uh, that also came. But talking about specifically Amish and Mennonites, the Amish are the kind of latest chapter in the German-American story of Wisconsin. Wisconsin has the fourth largest Amish population of any American states, and Amish are in 31 American states right now. So Wisconsin is fairly high up there. And Amish and Mennonites, uh, our churches are historically very closely related to one another because the Amish are a branch off of um, the Swiss Mennonite uh, movement. And the Mennonite movement was part of what's known as the Anabaptist movement began in the, in the 1520s. And the Amish, uh, mainly in Switzerland, and then spread to other parts of Europe. And the Amish were a small group of Swiss Mennonites in the late 1600s that, that broke away from the, from the larger body of Mennonites and became known as Amish. And a lot of people don't distinguish between Amish and Mennonite. It's all just kind of the same for a lot of outsiders. But I'd say the biggest stereotype that people have is that there is this period um, of youthful rebellion that happens when kids turn like age 16 or 17. It's known by the Pennsylvania Dutch word, which is a form of German called Rumspringa. It means literally running around. And the myth that's out there is that Amish parents, when their kids turn 16, give them the freedom or even encourage them to leave their communities, explore the outside world, and sow their wild oats and give them the opportunity to decide whether they're going to formally join the church or not. That is not correct. <laughs> Parents do not encourage their kids to go out and party and go wild. Um, a very, very small percentage of Amish youth, maybe 10%, right? At the most, I'd say between five and 10% do go a little bit wild in the same way that you would find in any group of teenagers, uh, like take your typical high school class. There always is going to be some element of celebrating a little bit more than average. But I would say that's probably the biggest misunderstanding about Amish and Mennonites is the, is the, the youth culture that's there. The vast majority of, of Amish youth really have very kind of everyday, boring, stable <laughs> teenage years, um, and it's not given to partying or wild behavior. So in the article, um, Linguist Helps Open Doors to Wisconsin's Pennsylvania Dutch Communities. I know you mentioned the Wisconsin idea. How or to what extent did uh, German immigrants influence and help shape the Wisconsin idea? Basically, the Wisconsin idea is that what we do in educational institutions, could be the UW system, uh, colleges and universities, or other educational institutions, that there should be some benefit of education to the larger community, right? So this is what we refer to as, say, public service or public outreach. And one of the things that has always 
drawn me or made me very happy now that I've come here, I've been here for 21 years as a faculty member at UW-Madison, is the value that's placed on public service and outreach work uh, through the university. And um, so this is an important part of my professional profile. Obviously, I teach, I do research, but I'm also very, very committed to public outreach. And because of my particular um, interest and ability to speak Pennsylvania Dutch uh, and working with uh, so-called plain communities, Amish and traditional Mennonite communities in the state, especially in the area of healthcare, I feel this is one way that I can give back uh, to the larger community and kind of build bridges between the university and specifically I work a lot with the medical school, the med school, and then like UW hospital, right? So I'm a so-called patient navigator. I also do medical interpretation for Pennsylvania Dutch speakers at the hospital. To the extent that German immigrants in influenced or played a role in shaping the Wisconsin idea, there really wasn't a direct connection because the Wisconsin idea developed in educational institutions and specifically the original, what's now the Madison campus today. But there were a lot of Germans that were public and civic minded, right? So one thing that a lot of German immigrants brought with them from Europe was the uh, feeling that community life was important. So you were obviously committed to your family and to your church, but community life could be done through church-run institutions or it could be through civic organizations. And so a lot of Germans um, affiliated with various kinds of clubs that had a kind of civic focus. And probably the most uh, visible of them were the so-called Turnvereine, so the Turner clubs, which were nominally gymnastic clubs. So like sort of like the YMCA or the YWCA. Um, but in addition to promoting physical health and their motto was, their motto was a sound mind in a sound body, right? So they say that it's important for people to be physically fit and to therefore from having a sound body, having a sound mind, but you put your mind to good use and you put your mind to use in education. You put your mind to use in addressing community issues. And so they became a kind of a community halls where people would have discussions of various kinds to talk about, say, you know, reducing crime or reducing poverty. And the neat thing about the Turnvereine was that these Turner clubs was that they were um, not affiliated at all with a particular ethnic German ethnicity within among the German groups or a, a particular religious group. You could be a religious, you could be religious, you could be Christian, Jewish, whatever. Um, it was just something that was intended to transcend these particular differences because they say, what we share in common is that we're all citizens of the state of Wisconsin and citizens of our immediate community. So I'd say that kind of community spirit and uh, civic giving back to one's community is something that is very much in line with the Wisconsin idea that connects education to public outreach. Apparently, you know, Wisconsin idea played a very important role in terms of how we teach or how we behave at educational institutions. How, how do you, you know, as someone who, who does this service or who teaches uh, this at the university, how do you encourage German students or language students in general to uphold the Wisconsin idea? And what do you think it means for them to uphold the Wisconsin ideas as, as foreign language students? You know, we are called, those of us who are really devoted to public outreach are kind of called to express that, uh, make that explicit in the classroom. So we, for example, in some of the things that I actually teach, these are drawn from my experience as a person who's doing, engaged in a lot of public outreach. And so I, 
I make that explicit. I say, this is knowledge that I've gained, not through book knowledge or through, you know, researching things on the internet, but through my practical experience, quote unquote, in the field. Even if the students themselves are not necessarily in the course of a semester engaging in public outreach, they kind of understand what public outreach is so that then when they're, say, in their professional careers, but even still when they're in their educational careers, they can understand that um, public service is something that's very, very important. Also, in the introduction, you mentioned that I, I direct the uh, Max Cotta Institute for German-American Studies, which is um, part of the College of Letters and Science at UW-Madison. And we're like a department, except we don't offer classes. So what we do is we promote research and public outreach. And so what we do is we have, um, say, lecturers. And now during the pandemic, we've had a lot of virtual lecturers um, that are open to the general public on topics that are of general interest to you know, students, you know, so undergraduate students, graduate students, community members, the, the, the whole uh, gamut of folks. And um, I think, again, it's sort of important for students to uh, recognize that um, there are practical connections with our knowledge, that what we learn in our classes are things that we can take and, to a certain extent, give back to communities or at least apply in our daily lives. Uh, you know, I think, for example, teaching language and linguistics, you know, it's all about communication and cultural awareness and emotional intelligence. These are very, very important concepts that are their benefits that come from foreign language study. These are also skills that serve people really, really well in a lot of different professions. So let's say a student is learning German, majoring or taking a certificate in German. There are lots and lots of opportunities to use German, to work in a German-speaking country, to uh, work for a German-speaking company. All, you know, here in the United States, there are a lot of ways to apply German directly, but even if one is not necessarily using one's German skills in one's profession, you're still using the general skills that you've developed in terms of things like cultural awareness, empathy, listening skills, communication skills in one's own language through a heightened sensitivity to language as a general phenomenon, and certainly emotional intelligence, which is considered a very, very important skill. I mean, there's sort of knowledge, like on a technical sense, that's very important in a lot of jobs, but being able to get along with people, to understand people as human beings and communicate with them effectively, that's, that's what we need emotional intelligence for. And something like that is a skill that we can develop in our classes and something that I take very, very seriously. To wrap up our conversation today, I believe we can agree that it is really important for us to understand and learn about our cultural heritage. It helps us understand who we are and where, where we come from. The discussion today has definitely accomplished that. So thank you, Professor Loudon, for taking the time to come to our show and to have this conversation with me. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions about our program, please contact us at podcast at badgerherald.com. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Please stay tuned for more episodes. I'm your host, Ken. This is the Badger Herald Podcast. Till next time.